Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. John, A1, if the Notre Dame coaching staff stays intact from top to bottom, would you project it to top five in 2024? Not yet. It's top 10. But top five is going to depend on a couple things. Number one, it's going to depend on Joe Rudolph making a year two jump. Now, there's this weird debate going on at Irish Breakdown on, on the mess premium board where you've got these people kind of doing these, these odd defenses of Joe Rudolph, in my opinion. And some of the board yesterday was like, you know, the run game was excellent this year. And look at the numbers. And I'm like, this is why I say numbers lie. Because it's not the, that the, I mean, the numbers are the numbers. It's more of the, how are you using the numbers? And if you're using numbers, hey, they rushed for 180 whatever yards a game. And I'm like, that, that, that just tells you what they did. It doesn't provide you analysis of the quality of it. For example, you can rush for 185 yards. And I may say, hey, 185 in a place like Notre Dame is not good enough. It needs to be 200. But if they did 185 yards and they played against like seven or eight top 25 rush defenses, including three or four top 10, top 15 rush defenses, 185 yards is pretty good. If you played a bunch against, uh, uh, against a bunch of mediocre to bad rush defenses and you rush for 185 yards, you didn't. You should have been over 200. So the context is very important to me. And and the context is is this def- this offensive line did not play well this year. There was a regression. The run game regressed, and from a yard standpoint, now part of that is, is if we're being honest, part of that is because they ran a lot fewer plays. They did have a higher yards per carry average this year. It was over five this year after being four point six last year, or it was a four point six or four point eight? Give me one second. I, I believe it was four six last year, but let me just look this up. Two thousand twenty two. Yeah, they're four point six two last year. This year they jumped up to five point two eight. That's all good stuff. That's really good stuff. Uh, but but the issue for me was you watch the film and you say it, it wasn't it wasn't good enough. Then you watch them against Ohio State and you're like, hey, that was a great performance. But then you watch how bad they were against Duke and how bad they were against Louisville and how bad they were against Clemson. And you say, well, hold on a second. They run for, ran for 183 yards against Clemson. Okay, number one, there were two big runs by Audric Estime that were blocked really poorly by the line that Audric just made great runs. You had a 30-plus yard gain of Sam Hartman on a on an empty pass play 
where he just saw that they vacated the middle and he just took off running. It's not a running play. And then you had another 20-something yard touchdown on a scramble. He ran outside and then ran up the sideline. So so right there, that's like, I mean, 70, 80 yards right there that had nothing to do with the offensive line. So again, the number, they ran for 183 against Clemson, does not tell you the, the story. And and then, of course, they finished very well. Right, I'll give you that. But I just didn't think they played well. Now, so I, I don't know why we need to try to like rewrite history and try to try to say, hey, Joe Rudolph was awesome this year and he was great. He was better than he stand. And it's like, that's just nonsense to me. But that also doesn't mean that we need to overreact. I'm like, Joe Rudolph's terrible. He's a bad hire. No, it's it's year one under Joe Rudolph wasn't great. There's some good moments. Ohio State, right? We went online, step up big games. They stepped up and played well against Ohio State. They finished the year strong. That's important. There were some good things this year, but it wasn't good enough for what the standard at Notre Dame is. Just like with what Al Washington did in 2022. I didn't think Al Washington did a good job in 2022, but what we said all offseason was he gets another shot at it. He's going to know the players better. They're going to know him better. There's always benefits to year two. We made this case about Al Golden. It's why Ryan and I both said that we thought the defense was actually going to be a lot better this year. How better? That that remains to be seen, but it was going to definitely be better despite losing Isaiah Foskey, despite losing the Adam Yolas, despite losing Tariq Bracey, all those type of things. You knew it was going to get better because year two, under a coaching staff tends to be better because of the knowledge that they have of each other. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. You know what I want. You know what I'm looking for. You know my strengths, my weaknesses as a coach. And then, you know, as the players kind of bought more and more into Al Washington and what he wanted, all of a sudden you see the level of the entire unit go up, right? So it wasn't like Howard Cross broke out. And you can say, well, you know, Howard Cross broke out and this guy transferred in who had a lot of production at Ohio State. And, and, and they are really the reason your D-line was better. It wasn't anything Al Washington did. Uh, th- that's not really the story. I mean, Javante Jean-Baptiste never played like he did at Ohio State. At, like, at, like, he never played at Ohio State like he did in Notre Dame. That's coaching. Riley Mills made the transition really well. He got a lot better. Howard Cross got a lot better. Josh Burnham took a big jump. You saw Jason Onye take a jump. You saw, I mean, you, so you saw a lot of different players stepping up as a unit Say when the whole when most of the unit's getting better, that's coaching. And then when like one guy takes a step back, like Jordan Patelho, but everybody else got better, you can say, well, it's probably more on him than it is the coach. So year two under Al Washington, way better than year one. And to me, the thing that makes me not have this coaching staff in the top five is that right there is the unknown of 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 will Joe Rudolph make a jump in year two, and if so, how much of one. If Joe Rudolph can just get a similar jump in, in not production, because here's the thing, the D-line production actually went down this year, or at least the, the statistics that, that make you think how good the D-line was. They had 10 fewer tackles for loss this year, and they had, I think it was like six or seven, seven or eight fewer sacks this year than they did the year before. But the play was way better. And yes, they had fewer sacks, but they had way more pressures. Yes, they had fewer tackles for loss, but they they gave up fewer big plays. They were more disruptive overall. Just the overall play was a lot better. If you can get a similar jump in year two under Joe Rudolph, then I think that jumps him into the top five because that tells me that that Coach Rudolph can replicate at Notre Dame, the very least replicate his better seasons that he had at Wisconsin. And I didn't think he was great at Wisconsin. I thought he was a good coach at Wisconsin. If he can be a good coach in 2024, Notre Dame's have, have a pretty good offensive line. And when you consider you've got – Definitely a top five coordinator combination next year, offense and defense. You've got some assistants that are many people consider 
among the best in the business at what they do. Dela McCullough, Mike Mickens. I think Chris O'Learing is, is is a is a really up and coming coach. Still has a lot to prove as a recruiter, but he's getting there with with Ivan Taylor and Ethan Long, and hopefully Jadon Blair at some point in time. You got Mike Brown coming in. That's a big upgrade. So there's a lot. Al Washington did some really good things this year. He's an, you know he's a guy that's ascending as a coach. But to me at Notre Dame, you've got to be good up front. You've got to be good on the offensive line. And I can't say that the coaching staff is that until I know that the, the offensive line is going to be coached well. So if Joe Rudolph does what I hope he does and think he's capable of doing, which is getting that jump in year two, even though you're losing some veterans, then – and I don't expect it to be right away either. You're going to have a pretty different-looking offensive line. You're going to be very young. you know. So I don't expect them to come out and look like the Joe Moore Award winners the first couple of games. If they do, great, but I don't expect it. But by game three, four, five, you should really be rolling. And if he can get that unit there, then, yes, they jump immediately in the top five. And, and the special teams need to get better, too. But I, I think I think Marty Biagi's first year at Notre Dame was solid. They were solid this year. You'd like to see him get a little bit more dynamic, but they were solid. I mean, you had a punt return touchdown. You had a kick return touchdown. You had a, a, a fumble t- uh, that you picked up and recovered for a touchdown. There was, some good, there was some good improvement in certain areas. Now they just need to get a little bit more dangerous in my opinion and and yeah the kick return touchdown was great but your kick return unit was very inconsistent coverages were good but your return unit has to get more and more consistent but you know I, I that's not keeping them out of the top five it's 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 joe rudolph is a key if he if he's as good as we hope he is they're top five if he's not then it's hard for me to say that they're in the top five but they're certainly in the top 10 at this point my opinion it's just right now they're probably closer to the bottom of the top 10 and with the potential to be even better, in my opinion. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help. From fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Indy Estimate Trucking, LLC. Notre Dame should bring Coach Reese back as a GA. He's not a bad coach, and he could possibly help. I mean, I, I don't know if you're being serious or not. I, I don't know if this is like sarcasm. It's it's funny either way. I, I like it either way. But, uh, Look, Tom Reese is not a bad coach. He's not a great coach, but he's not a bad coach. He's got a lot of potential, but I don't see any scenario in which it would make sense to bring him back as a GA. Number one, I don't think he can be a GA. He has already been a GA. He's been a full-time coach. I don't believe you can go from full-time coach to GA. I just don't think that's that's allowed. And he's already he you know he was already a GA at Northwestern. He was already a GA at Notre Dame. So that's not happening. The only thing that you could possibly do is if let's just say hypothetically Coach Reese doesn't like the options he has and, and he calls Coach Freeman, hey, I, I want to come back and help out this year. And I know you don't have a, an on-field job, but you know, bring you back as an analyst. That'd be the only thing he could do. But Tommy Reese will be fine. 
I mean, he'll either get an, an OC job at the Power Five level, or he'll go to the NFL as a quarterbacks coach or an OC. He'll be he'll be fine. It, it you know, it's it's unfortunate what all the Bama assistant coaches are going through right now, but that's that's part of the business. But yeah, he'll be he'll be fine. He'll be absolutely fine. Garen Nutson, do you consider this year a make or break it year for Emil Wagner? I.e., if he doesn't put on meaningful weight and force himself into the rotation soon, he's at risk of being buried. No, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I mean, he'll be a redshirt sophomore this year. So he'll still have three years to play. But, you know, part of it is, I mean, he could do the things you're talking about, Garen, as far as putting on weight and and playing really well and, and still not be good enough to start. I mean, Tosh Baker could have an even better offseason. And then, you know, if that happens and Tosh has a great offseason and then he leaves after 2024, then Emil's ready to step in and be a two-year starter. So I wouldn't say it's make or break as far as being a starter. But I do think he's getting – it's worth at least having the conversation, Garen, that if he doesn't improve and and gain the weight and show that he can hold that weight and play a certain way, that you could see him get passed up by the Sullivan Absher's or the Gerby Lamberts and guys like that. So I don't think this is a make it or break it year. Make it, make it or break – make or break – excuse me make or break year for Emil Wagner in regard to he's got to win a starting job. It's a make or break year for him in regard to you've got to take a jump because again, he could take a jump and still not start, but the jump is the key because the jump puts you in position to step in if somebody gets hurt or to feel good about you going into next spring as sort of the, the leader in the clubhouse. And then you still have two years of eligibility to play and be a starter. So I think the jump is it's it's a it's a big year to make the jump. You have to show the improvement. You have to show you can gain the weight, keep the weight, and all those kind of things in order to do that. And I saw somebody down there said I heard I heard it was Reese to George's offensive coordinator. That was another fake account, guys. There's so much fake stuff out there. You you have to stop just assuming because somebody that has a, an official looking Twitter feed or even has a check mark is putting out legit information there's just a lot of bad information out there some of it has some truth to it but the person that everyone may may respond to it's not true but the tommy reese georgia thing is is i don't i don't believe that's at all true it's a fake account it, it's not a real account what john a1 also asked what is cooper flanagan's potential as a pass catcher in 2024 I mean, he's got a chance to be a good pass catcher. I, I, you know, as, as a as a complimentary guy, you know, like to me, when I look at his potential production this year, there's two ways I could kind of look at it. Number one is, look, if he's going to play as much as he's going to play, he has to he has to have some level of production, and you can't not ever throw to him. It's just it's a waste. Does that mean he's going to have like a Troy Nicholas 2012 kind of year, five catches for 75 yards? Does he have like a Ben Koyak type of year the next year with 10 catches for 171? That all remains to be seen. And in both of those instances, those guys were the number two tight ends. Troy's going to be number three tight end. You know, but for me, I, I, I believe you have to use him. If you're going to run as much 12 and 13 with him in the game, then he's got to catch the ball, you know, at least a little bit. So I could see five to 10 catches for him next year. That would be my, that would be my uh, sort of desired number, barring injury. Now, if Mitchell Evans is out the first month, this is hypothetically, let's say his his recovery from the knee injury, they don't want to rush him back. You know, hey, the goal is to have him back by Louisville. All right, cool, no big deal. I mean, you, you can get him ready for that. Maybe you bring him back for the Northern. I think it was at Miami, Ohio's before Louisville. 
they say, look, we're we're going to give him that warm up game. You know, he could maybe be cleared early, but we want to be safe than rather, but you know, safe than sorry. Then he could step in. Then Cooper could get a lot of production as number two tight end. There, he could get three, four, five catches during that three to four games if that happens. Uh, and then maybe doesn't catch a ton the rest of the way. But but just overall, barring injury, barring guys being out, I think five to ten catches would would be a nice a nice number there for your your third string tight end. That would be the ideal. I mean, if you think about it this year, you think about the third string tight ends this year. I mean, you had you had two catches from Davis Sherwood. You had one catch from Cooper Flanagan. And then five catches from Eli Raritan. That's eight. You know, so, I mean, those those were basically the guys that made up your, your third tight ends this season. So that that's where I would be on that. Brandon Plesner says, now that Raiden Vines' brightest transfer to IMG, do you think he remains a realistic wide receiver target? Where do you see the wide receiver board as of now, and who would you like to see in a four-man class, including Bettis? I like how you said that. Uh, as far as I know, yes, he's still going to be a Notre Dame uh, target. The key is if you're on a kid before he goes to IMG, you're in the game. They've gotten IMG kids before. they got Houston Griffith. they got Robert Hainsey. Uh, you know, they got uh, Tony Jones Jr. they got Spencer Perry. So they've gotten IMG guys before. The, the, the question is, is like, are you going to be able to get on an, a guy at IMG when he's at IMG? That's less likely. That's one where they just haven't been overly successful of getting kids that they got on while they were at IMG. You already have a relationship with this kid. I mean, Mike Brown's been building it for well before he got to Notre Dame. So there's a relationship there. And also, too, Brandon, is Notre Dame's entering into a little bit of a different sphere right now in that they're becoming more of an it program. And now with Nick Saban leaving, I mean, there's just a lot of things going on where they're becoming more and more of an it program that if they go out this season and and throw the ball like we hope they're going to throw the ball and have the success that we think they're going to have on offense this year uh, after scoring 39 points a game last year, then all of a sudden they become that type of program where kids want to go play for him. And because not every IMG kid has this desire to get just, I'm just going, whoever's going to pay me the most. There are kids like that. There's no doubt about it, but it's not every kid. There's other kids that are like, look, I want to, I, I'm not sure. I want to get, I want to get my money. Like almost all these kids do, but I want to go somewhere. I'm going to be developed and get an education and all that kind of stuff. And those kids will, will tend to say, Hey, I'm going to get this amount from Notre Dame. It's not what I'm getting, what I could get from Florida or Miami or whatever, but I don't really care as much about that. I'm not just looking for the biggest payday. I'm getting enough. I'm comfortable with it. But, man, I go there. I'm going to get a degree. I'm going to play in this great offense. I love the receivers coach. This, 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 and this. And so those are all those are all parts of, of what goes into um, recruiting at that level. Notre Dame just hasn't had the – they haven't had – they haven't been enough of an it program to have that kind of impact with enough IMG kids. But th- – th- They'll they'll start to win some more of those battles if they keep winning. That's the key. They got to keep winning and start producing more. But I expect them to remain with him. As far as the wide receiver board, still a bit of a work in progress for us for our, regard in regard to our understanding of who's on the board. You know, I don't know that the names have changed outside of you've got some new guys on the board now, right? You you had Raiden Vines Bright, who you just talked about, got offered by Mike Brown. You had Elijah Burris. Uh, Plexico Burris's kid got offered recently from DePaul Catholic in New Jersey. And, and so you've got them on the board. Those are new. Then, of course, you still have, you mentioned Jerome Bettis Jr. You've still got Dalen McCutcheon on the board. I believe he's going to be visiting this weekend. You've got Derek Meadows on the board still. 
I don't, I, I'm pulling up Ryan's visit list. I don't know that he's, I don't believe he's visiting this weekend, but I, I could be wrong on that. Looking at the list, who are the receivers coming in? Yeah, he's not on there right now. It just looks like it's McCutcheon and, and Bettis. And then you've got, uh, I know Sean Terry's visiting this weekend, but I don't believe Sean Terry has an offer yet. Perhaps he gets one this weekend. We'll, we'll find out. Uh, but, you know, you've got, uh, You've got, let's see, where did I leave off? You got Meadows, you've got Cooper Perry's on the board, although I believe he's a little lower. You got Quincy Porter on the board, you got Taylor Taylor on the board. So those that's primarily the board uh for Notre Dame right now. Uh, I believe that they'll add more guys to it. I don't I don't believe that Notre Dame is just gonna kind of be content with just where they are, especially if they don't land guys. But you know, that's a pretty talented board, man. I mean I, I'm watching some of these kids that that they're on, and I'm like, dude, you can have a really good three man group with some of the kids on this board. And then if you you are throwing number four being Jerome Bettis Jr., I mean, you give me any three of, and I'm I I got to watch game film, but just the early look on Elijah Burris, I like a lot. But you look at Elijah Burn Burris, Dalen McCutcheon, Derek Meadows, Cooper Perry, Quincy Porter, Taylor Taylor, Raiden Vines, Bright. You give me just about any three man combination of that group. That's a pretty good wide receiver haul in my opinion. So, you know, there, there's a lot of talent on the board. It's just closing time now, right? But, like, this is going to be Dalen McCutcheon's third trip to campus. The kid's from Texas. He's not making three trips to Notre Dame on his own dime if there's not a high level of interest. So the, the board is still being shaken out. Like, do they like Taylor Taylor as much now as they did before? Do they like Derek Meadows as much now as they did before? I, I, I don't have the answers to those questions. Perhaps Ryan will be better, be in a better place to answer those questions uh, on on Friday when he has the recruiting mailbag, but that's kind of where we are right now with the with the receiver board. And the next couple months, we'll, a lot of this will shake out because we'll see who's visiting and all those type of things. Golden Cab Indy, what kind of changes will need to be made from Rudolph, if any, uh, if any, as far as his beliefs and scheme up front to adapt to Denbrock's offensive demands? Well, here's a that's a I, 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 this is a, a very good question. So if we're just talking scheme. Rudolph has always been a big pin and pull guy, a lot of counter, a lot of gap scheme, a lot of power at Wisconsin. And we saw them run a lot of that. They ran a lot of power, a lot of counter, a lot of, a lot of pin and pull type stuff this year on top of that, you know, gap scheme stuff on top of that. Mike Denbrock runs the heck out of inside zone. He's a big believer in running a lot of inside zone. And, and so, you know, I expect duo to also kind of be part of that because I almost feel like right now, if you're not running duo and inside zone together, I don't care which one you run more. That's got to be your personal preference, but you gotta, you've got to be able to run both of them, in my opinion. If you're gonna have, if you're if you're gonna really use them correctly, but I mean LSU, they ran a lot of inside zone. At Cincinnati, ran a lot of inside zone. In Notre Dame, they ran a lot of inside zone. Having said that, I also believe that when you are really going to be an effective run game. We've talked about this before. You, you've got to have some diversity to it. You've got to be able to mix things up. So so I would imagine that what we're going to see is, you know, Denbrock leaning into the things that Joe Rudolph believes in and is really good and then and then combining that with what he does. And and the pin and pull stuff is not foreign to Mike Denbrock. You know, they run counter. They run gap scheme at times. I mean, they, they run toss with getting a couple guys out in space blocking. They, they run that kind of stuff. Well, that's going to be kind of Joe Rudolph's baby those are the things he's going to be really comfortable with and so the hope is is that you can kind of mesh those two things together and get a nice diverse run game but I think he's going to have to get used to 
Joe Rudolph's going to get used to the fact that like inside zone is going to be our bread and butter. I don't think that's going to be a problem for him. He's run inside zone. He ran inside zone at Wisconsin. He ran inside zone at Notre Dame last year. It's just, you know, are, are you majoring in it? Are you minoring in it? That those are a lot of the questions. And he's going to they're going to major in inside zone, and they should major in inside zone at Notre Dame, in my opinion. But you, you'll still see him mix up those other things. So so that'll be a that'll be a, a combining of the two is what we're going to see happen. But he's going to have to be. He's just going to have to love the inside zone a little bit more maybe than he has in the past. John A1 asks, now that Xavier Watts is returning in, in 2024, is there any other secondary that enters 2024 that's comparable? John, I don't know how much I can answer that question because I'm still I'm still not sure who all has who all's coming back. Like I, I know that Michigan is losing Sane Strill. I know they're losing, I believe they're losing Josh Wallace, the other corner. I know Will Johnson's coming back. I'm not sure the status of like Macari Page and Rod Moore. I don't know how much eligibility they have left. And, and so, you know, that would be one that I would have to look at. I, I think Ohio State has a chance to have a really good secondary next year. I know that they lost, uh, I believe that Josh Proctor's out of eligibility. But you've got Denzel Burke announced he's coming back. Jordan Hancock obviously is coming back. He played a bunch. The other corner that played, uh, what's the kids? I can't remember the third corner they had played a bunch this year. Uh, Lathan Ransom's coming back. You've got some other young safeties that are part of the mix. I think Ohio State will have a really good secondary next year, in my opinion. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think. I know Bama lost a lot. Georgia has a lot coming back in their secondary next year. And it was pretty – I believe they were – I think it was corner they were really young this year, I believe. But, you know, got Malachi Starks coming back. He's really good. He's one of the best safeties in college football, in my opinion. So Georgia will have a really good secondary this season. I'm going to have to kind of look through and see what a lot of teams have coming back, to be honest with you. This will be a much better coming into next season or maybe getting into the offseason and, and seeing who who went who's in the portal, you know, who went where, who left, who's coming back, who turns on the NFL draft, those type of things. But just off the top of my head, Ohio State, Georgia are two teams that stand out to me as teams that I, I know what's coming back, and it's really good. And there's some good young players stepping into spots as well, or at least competing for spots as well. That should make both of those secondaries very good. Now, I think Notre Dame, to me, has a case to – an argument to have as far as are they the best secondary coming back next year because you do re- return Xavier Watts, who's an, a unanimous All-American – you do return Benjamin Morrison, who's a stud. You do have two very talented younger players competing. You do have a very experienced guy that come from a Power Five school at Jordan Jordan Clark, who, you know, some people who I respect, Ryan Roberts being one, will will contend that he was he's better he's better coming in than Thomas Harper was. You know, I, I think to me that's debatable, but it's de- but the fact that it's debatable, not just like dude's crazy, that guy's not nearly as good, it makes you feel confident that, that he's going to be at least at least on par with what Thomas Harper and Tariq Bracey did the last two years, which is pretty good. And and I truly believe if Rod Hurd can make the adjustment to defense, and actually there's a couple games last year that he played where you see him on a lot more on, like playing safety, I think he's going to end up being better than what they had last year. And I think Don Schuler is going to be a better player than Ramon Henderson was. So I, I think you're going to be better at safety next year. You're still going to be very good at cornerback. And you're having nickel. So I, I think Notre Dame's in the conversation for do they have the best secondary coming back college football next year? I, I think they're in that conversation. So um it's a fun place for Notre Dame to be, but but it's just off the time at Georgia and Ohio State or two that 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 stick out. Again, John, this bring this up when we kind of get closer to spring. 
and obviously in the summer because we'll have a much better idea of who's ba- who's coming back, who's where, and all that kind of stuff. And it'll be a lot more fun conversation for us to have. Johnny S., is there any real smoke regarding Jamie French? I mean, it depends on what you mean by real smoke. Uh, is is no, Would Notre Dame love to have Jamie French now that he's decommitted from Alabama? Sure. Is Notre Dame a realistic option for Jamie French right now? I, I, I don't believe so. I mean, look, anytime you have Deuce Knight, you got a shot. But, I mean, the kid visited Notre Dame, I think, twice and liked Notre Dame, but they were never what I would consider like in his top two or three. So, you know, he, he's he's going to be – He's going to be looking for certain things that I don't know that Notre Dame is necessarily offering. So unless that changes, I, I think ultimately that, that Notre Dame is not going to be a, a school that's going to be a major, major player for him. But is there smoke regarding them being interested in him? Yes. Do I expect, unless he knows where he's going, would I expect him to be interested in Notre Dame? Sure, because he's already been interested in Notre Dame. And it doesn't hurt that Chris Mitchell, who's from the same high school, is – going to be in Notre Dame now, right? So there's some, there's going to be some familiarity there. I mean, they're multiple years apart, but you know, you, you know, the kid still goes back there and all those type of things. So, you know, is there smoke to it? Sure. There's smoke to it, but it's, it's not where I'm like, Oh, Jamie French is going to be the guy. I'd love it if he is. I think it's really good, but I, he's not someone that I right now think Notre Dame is going to be a major, major player for. I hope that changes, but that's my read on it right now. So I didn't mention him in when we had the receiver board conversation a, a few minutes ago. Brandon Plesser says, is there any intel regarding Notre Dame coaches travel plans for the week and who they may be visiting? So I'll, I'll you know, Brandon, we'll, we'll put that stuff up on the message board. There is an, an Intel drop that I had today about who, where the coaches are. Ryan will have more stuff as we get through the week. We'll drop kind of the night before where we anticipate them being the next day, next couple days, a lot of offensive linemen, a lot of quarterbacks in the 26 class right now that they're going to go out and see this week. Some, you know, uh, as far as how much, you know, I'm not sure what exactly we can say, but a lot of offensive linemen. They're going to be in Indy tomorrow seeing Damian Shanklin. That's a big one, right? But uh, some of this stuff too is just general visits. Like Coach Freeman's going to be at all the big powers in California tomorrow. And so, I mean, some of this is just getting out to see schools, even if maybe there's not necessarily a play that you're you're in a great position for. You got to go to Bosco. You got to go to Modern Day. You got to go to J. Sarah Catholic. You just you have to go there. You have to go to Bergen Catholic, even if maybe there's not a kid you're pushing for right now. You got to go to Bosco. You know, Don Bosco. Those are all. You know, you you got to go to certain parts. You got to go to the D.C. schools, even though you may not be in for a play right now. And that's what a lot of it's going to be. It's going to be a lot of area recruiting with the with emphasis on making sure you get out to see the schools of certain players. So uh, we'll have more of that as we get through the week, Brandon. NDSMA trucking with the size of the D-line and the athletes and linebacker. Could Notre Dame play a solid 3-4 hybrid defense? Well, I mean, honestly, what you're asking for is kind of what they're already doing. And and so do I see Notre Dame playing a, a 3-4? No, I don't. Even a hybrid 3-4? No, I don't because – you know, I don't think you're ever going to see like four linebackers on the field. Could I see Notre? I mean, but but does no, what does what Notre Dame does now with their four two five, and 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 at times four three personnel in that four two five? But then your Viper, who's a DN, is is a, a guy that's playing in a two point stance and will drop into coverage. I mean, you're getting some of those same principles out of it. But what I like about being more of a four down is. I, I just like the idea of being able to cover more of your gaps with your linemen. I, I just, to me, 
I'm a proponent of that. I've always felt that was harder to, to, you know, if you've got good players that that's a little harder to defend or you know, to plan for as an offensive coach than, than a three down, even if that three downs really good, like you need to have like Georgia talent to me in today's game to really be elite in a three down. Um, like, like Alabama considers themselves a three, four, but the way that they use their outside linebackers kind of like how Notre Dame uses the Viper. The difference is, is Notre Dame lines up in more under over fronts and Bama lines up in a more odd fronts. So there, there are certainly some differences, but again, that's Bama talent. Could Notre Dame do it? Sure. I just, I don't know that Notre Dame is going to have the beef to do it. To be honest with you, I think in order to do a, a three, four, the way Bama does and Georgia does, you've got to have beef. And I don't know, know that Notre Dame necessarily has that kind of beef right now to, to be that. Could they in the future? Maybe. Maybe, but not right now. Garen Nutson says, if the guard play play doesn't take a step forward, because you see the likes of Sullivan Absher or Gerby Lambert moving inside to shake things up, in what situations does Joe Rudolph move them inside? I'd, do, I'd be shocked if Gerby Lambert moves inside. I, I think he's a tackle. He's got a tackle body. He's got tackle athleticism, all that kind of stuff. And, man, like, you just – he's a tackle. Sullivan Absher, I could see that. And what would it take to get Sullivan Absher to move him inside? What it would take is wherever he's playing in the spring. Let's say that Sullivan stays a tackle going into the spring. He has a great spring. And you're just like, man, this kid is, I mean, we put him in with the twos. We give him some one reps, you know, it's because you mix it up and give kids one reps. And this kid just, I mean, he's just kicking butt, man. He's, he's a talented kid, but so is Charles Jagasol. So is Tosh Baker or Emil Wagner, whoever your number two is. And man, I love what Sullivan is doing, but just he's not going to start over these guys to tackle. But man, we got to find a way to get this kind of fit. He's a mauler. He's kicking butt. He said, "Okay, we'll move him inside the guard, let him compete there." I think that's what it'll take. You know, or, or the other thing it could be is even if he's not necessarily, you know, pushing for a starting job, maybe there's other guys that are just more natural tackle. And you're like, you know, Sullivan is really at his best just coming off the line and mauling people. And you just think that maybe his future is best served at guard which, I mean, I, I kind of think it is, then maybe you make that move then, even if it's not like, hey, you're making this move to get him, you know, to go out and start and fight for a certain job. That could be it too. But I ultimately, I'd like to see him move inside. I, I would. But your tackle numbers are not great right now. So if anything, Gerby Lambert coming in in 2024 and showing like, hey, this kid's, this kid's going to be ready really quickly. Now all of a sudden you've got Charles Jagasaw at tackle, you got Tosh Baker tackle. You've got Emil Wagner tackle. And you've got Styles Prescott as a young developmental player. And then all of a sudden, Gerby Lambert comes in and is like, dude, I'm going to be ready quickly. I think that's where you might feel a little bit more comfortable saying, hey, let's move Sully inside, give him a chance to compete for starting job because he's really good and he's massive. I mean, could you imagine if someday Notre Dame is lining up with, uh, l- let me pull up, ja- Jagasaw, I believe, is 6'7 and 330. Let me pull up the roster here real quick for this past season. So you had you had uh, Charles Jagasaw was listed at six six and a half and three hundred thirty pounds or six seven three hundred thirty pounds. Sullivan Absher this year was listed at six six and a half and three hundred twenty six pounds. Could you imagine Notre Dame lining up to run a football next year or in two years with those two monsters side by side and saying like Good luck stopping us running to the left. Have fun with that, fellas. Boy, that'd be – I could see that. That would fire me up. So, yeah, I, I still would like to see Sullivan move inside. And then you'd have him. You'd have 
you know, obviously you have Coogan and Spindler as the veterans, but you have Sully, you'd have Sam Pendleton, you'd have Billy Shrouth, uh, obviously who's who's going to compete for starting job. Peter Jones, I think, eventually is there. All of a sudden you're like, man, the depth of guard and the battles of guard are going to be really, really good. But that's kind of what I would like to see. Michael Mahoney with Super Chat. Thank you, Michael, very much. I appreciate that. Brian, I believe the conference championship game has become irrelevant in the 12-team playoff system. Top teams in the cha- is the champion to determine the top four seeds. I agree with you. I, I think you can find a way to have your top team get a bye without playing a, a 13th game. Just say, hey, look, who is the top team? Who is the highest-ranked team from the SEC? Do we really need to see... You know, like like this year, for example, I I feel in a four team playoff that Bama just had that one good day. I don't think Bama is a better team than Georgia over the course of an entire season. I think Bama was better than Georgia on the day of the SEC title game. That's all you need. And so, do I think you can maybe hinder yourself a little bit? And then all of a sudden, Bama now Bama now gets the bye week, and your best team, Georgia, now has to play in the first round. Uh, is that really what you want? Well, if you're talking about what gives us the best chance to get our best teams in the playoff, I I don't think the conference championship helps you a whole ton. Here's the other part of it too. Like, let's say you're, you know, let's say you're going into a season, and I'm actually going to look this up because I'm very curious what their ranking actually was last year. But just give me a second. I want to pull up the college football playoff rankings going into last season's conference championship games. Let me go to 2022. Let me go into week 14. So uh, you're you're going into the college football playoff. You're going into that last weekend. And let's just use the SEC as an example. You're you're sitting there and you've got three teams that are that are sitting there like they're likely going to get in. And You've got LSU at 14. Well, the way that conference title games shake out, you know, let's say that, that you know, Kansas State, let's say TCU would have beat Kansas State. Maybe that knocks them out. Let's say North Carolina upsets, you know, pe- uh, North, you know, you have North Carolina upsets Clemson and they get knocked out. So let's say Clemson's out. Now Florida State and North Carolina are in. You know, maybe it's just maybe it's just Florida, maybe it's just North Carolina, whatever. I mean, you look at different scenarios and you could say, hey, you know, LSU could have gone from 14 to 11 in that final weekend, you know, if if you didn't have your conference championship game. And then you say, well, you know, other teams might get rid of theirs too, perhaps. But to me, it's kind of like you're you have a greater chance, in my opinion, of like if you don't have a Big 12 title game, TCU is in and Kansas State's in. But if TCU would have upset, this is probably a better example than the SEC. But TCU and Kansas State are both in. They're set. They're three and ten right now. They're both in. Well, the way it played out, Kansas State beat TCU. But what's let's say TCU holds on at the end, and can now Kansas State gets knocked out. So you having your title game just took a team out of the out of the playoff. I think you're going to see that happen more more than they would like. But here's why it won't matter because they don't play the title game because they have this deep desire, this deep passion for finding out who is the best team in the SEC. Like, guys, have we needed a Big Ten title game the last decade to know who the best team in the Big Ten was? Has it really been necessary? Like, maybe twice. 
the Penn State year, the Penn State was it Penn State Wisconsin, twenty sixteen. Okay, sure, maybe that year. You know, twenty. What what year? What year did Michigan State and Iowa play? It was a fifteen, fourteen, uh, fifteen. It was fifteen when when Penn State played Iowa, or excuse me, when Iowa played Michigan State, and then Michigan State won, and they go to the college football playoff. I'm pretty sure it was twenty fifteen. Let me go look that up real quick. Give me a second. Yeah, 2015, uh, Michigan State beats Iowa. You know, Iowa was pretty good that year. You know, Iowa was undefeated that year. They they were 12 and 0 going into that game. Michigan State that season, I believe, only had one loss. I think it was in Nebraska. Yes, it was in Nebraska. They had beaten Ohio State. They had beaten Michigan that season. They had beaten Penn State. It was debatable on who the top two teams were in the Big Ten. Most years, however, it's not. It's Ohio State against some bum West team from the West. It's Michigan against a four-loss Purdue team or a, an Iowa team that scores 15 points a game. It's, 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 we don't need that. It's just a moneymaker. In most years, you know who your champ is. And in some years, you actually run the risk of knocking a team out of the playoff if you do have a repeat of the t- or a game, a title game. And so – We've seen that several times. I think it was 18, 2018. Let me let me look at this up real quick, real quick, because I think 2018 might have been a year where Texas might have been able to get in if they didn't have to do a rematch against Oklahoma. No, they were up to 14. So potentially, yeah. So Texas gets up to number 14, and you know they're just kind of on the outside looking in. But who knows what they would have been in the playoff system? But then they play number five Oklahoma, get beaten. They're, you know, now they're not even in conversation. So I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily a great thing to have the cause to, to have the, 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 um, to have the conference title games as far as 12 team playoff. I think it's too much wear and tear on the bodies. You know, if you play in a conference title game and lose, but still make the playoff, you've got to now play 17 games to win a title because you played 13 when you include the conference title game. Now you're not getting a buy, so you got to play in the in the first round. Then you got to play in the quarters. Then you got to play in the semis. And then you got to play in the title. That's 17 games for college kids. That's that's way too much. But I don't think they're going to get rid of it, Michael, because it makes too makes them too much money. And 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 we all can agree that the vast majority of decisions that are made by college football leaders is about money, either making money or not losing it. Meaning we're gonna we're gonna give into this because we don't want to get sued and lose money. It's either about making money or keeping money. That That's what these decisions are about. It's not about what's best for the game. That's why I wish we had leadership that said, hey, what's best for the game? Are we making decisions best for the game? Then we'd see a lot of things be different. They don't really care about that, to be honest with you. John A1, does having an experienced OC like Denbrock, who's been a Power 5 O-line coach, aid Joe Rudolph in development of the young O-line in 2024? Certainly. Absolutely. Uh, from the standpoint of, is Mike Denbrock going to be jumping in meetings and taking over O-line meetings? No, but it's more of a mindset thing. Mike Denbrock is going to be a coach that believes in certain things that are beneficial to the O-line. And and like for an example, one of the things you'll see is a, you know Mike Denbrock's not someone who wants to run 13 different run concepts. Mike Denbrock's like, let's find 15 different ways to run inside zone. Let's run eight different looks to run counter. You know, let, let's 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 complement inside zone with, 
you know, we'll, we'll run split flow, we'll run lock, we'll run read, we'll run RPOs off of it. You know, we're, we don't need to run a million plays to, to, to be effective. You know, where another guy like a Lincoln Riley, a quarterback's coach is like, man, let's run like these 12, eight, nine different run concepts and, and do this and do that. And you better hope you have a great O-line coach because otherwise you're going to, you're going to struggle against the better teams. So I think that'll help Joe Rudolph say, hey, look, I don't need to teach them inside zone and all its variations, duo and all its variations, counter and all its variations, power and all its variations, you know, buck sweep and all its variations, you know, uh, gap scheme and all, you know, like you don't need to run all that stuff. You're running inside zone and its variations, duo and it's, you're running one misdirection. And then you kind of minor in the pin and pull stuff, right? Where you have it, but it's not, you're not majoring in it. That allows you to be really good at the things you're majoring in. And you see a lot of guys like Denbrock who have that experience coaching the O-line, and there's not a lot of them, that a lot of times will be more focused on it's not how much we run, it's how good we are at what we run. And and that's going to be a big part of Mike Denbrock's belief system is, yeah, he's smart, he knows football, he knows scheme, he knows X's and O's, he knows how to put a game plan together, he knows how to you know scheme his way into success and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, Mike Denbrock's biggest foundational principle as an offensive coordinator is it's being really good at what we do, not having necessarily a million things. What we're going to have, we're going to be really good at. And then finding that balance between being really good at things, but not having enough to really attack teams and saying, we're going to do really, we're going to be really good at these things, but we're going to run them in enough ways to, to be effective. So like one year, for an example, like I don't think Mike Dembrock was this guy that just went out every week and said, hey, let's let's out scheme everyone. Let's show everyone how smart we are. But I believe it was Will Fuller's junior year, uh, 2015, where I counted. Will Fuller ran like 26, un- like it was like 23 unique routes during the season. And so when I mean like a unique route, I don't mean like, you know, a corner where it goes over top or a corner where you bend. That's a corner with different principles based on how the safety's playing you, how the coverage is set up and things like that. Now it will be differently where if I have a corner and then a post corner or a, you know, sort of a, a you know, the, the corners that are meant to kind of come in vertical out, people call them different things, a bend, whatever. I mean, there's lots of different names for them. That's a different route. Cause it's got different, like the, what you're doing to attack a defense is different. So you'll, that, that to me is like three different, routes and then there's principles within each route and he ran like like over 20 unique routes that season that's a lot and you've got a lot to teach in that regard so it's not like they're running hitches goes posts and comebacks that that's it that's all your outside guy needs to do no there's some complexity to it but at the end of the day it's all about we've got to make sure that our players can execute what we do at a very high level because we're player driven and and it's especially true in the run game in my opinion, you'll see that really manifest itself, which in turn helps Joe Rudolph focus on technique, footwork. You know, because like if you're having to teach like all these new wrinkles every week to what you're doing uh, scheme wise, and you're you're always making these little like Notre Dame would just like every week there's like two or three run concepts. You're like, well, I never really saw that before, and they'd run like two or three times, and it was okay. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it wasn't. And you're like, how much how much practice time did you have to spend on those new looks? And, and instead of saying, hey, look, we're going to focus on this and this and this and be really good at that. And then we'll have some wrinkles off of it that are really effective. I think you'll I think that'll definitely help Joe Rudolph quite a bit. 
Joe Allen asks, with all the new portal jumps from coaching changes, are there any Notre Dame should go after? Well, I, I couldn't tell you, Joe, that I know exactly who's in the portal right now. You know, would I it, – it's like here's an example, like Jamar, Jabbar Muhammad. Is Jabbar Muhammad a guy that's worth looking into? Yeah, he is. Would I do it at the end of the day? I don't know. And I, Ryan, I'd like to see you kind of put your answer to that in the chat. But boy, I, I'm torn on that one because part of me wants to say, that's a really good football player. The other part of me is like, yeah, but I really want to see Christian Gray play a lot this year. And so those are the tough decisions you have to make sometimes. You know, there's the, the, you know, there's going to be some receivers jumping to Porter that are good players. And I'm like, yeah, but but do I really want to see less of Jaden Greathouse or less of Jordan Faison or less of Cam Williams because you got this good receiver that's maybe not a game changer? Those are the things that I look at, and I'm just very curious to see, like, would I go after that guy or not? Like, like there's a an offensive lineman from Washington that jumped in the portal, and I'm like, you know, man, that's tempting, but no, I think I'm, I think I'm good with with developing the guys that they are. So, you know the and there's going to be some guys, honestly, that are just not going to be options. Let's just let's just let's just be honest about that. There's just going to be some guys that you know you you may look and say, "Hey, it'd be great if they could go after that guy," but it's just not going to happen, right? So, I just think right now, I think just right now, I'm comfortable with where Notre Dame is when it comes to their current roster. I'm I'm comfortable where Notre Dame is. It, trying to think if there's a position that I would really look at a guy that, like I said, a guy would just have to be too good to pass up. That would be the thing. And I just don't know who that would be right now. But a lot of these guys, again, guys, a lot of these guys are getting into this. They know where they're going or they're looking for certain. I mean, props to Isaiah Bond for being honest about it. I mean, I didn't like his answer just because of what it means about the game, but I respected the heck out of the kid for being honest. He's like, look, I made a business decision. This is going to help my company out more, my brand out more, being at Texas as opposed to over here. So that's why I'm making this move. Right, that's the world we live in. Right, he'd be an idiot not to think about those things if if that's his top priority, and, and at least he's honest about it. So that's where a lot of these kids are. You know, I mean, a lot of these top recruits, former top recruits, that we oh, I'm excited. Either a, they know where they're going, they get in the portal, or b, they're getting in the portal looking for uh, something that I don't know that I necessarily want to give. Like like Cam Ward. Good Lord, I have I want no part of Cam Ward. No part of Cam Ward. The guy declared for the NFL draft. He's looking for a big payday. The only reason he's going to Miami is because Miami upped their offer and gave him a big offer. That, let's be honest. That's it. That's it. So uh, do, am I winning with that guy? No, I, I don't think you are. Because as soon as thing hits, things hit the fan, like look what happened to Washington State this year. Early in the season, things are going really well. He's playing really well. Then things start to falter. They need that kid to pick him up and carry him. And he falters. He just keeps playing worse and worse and worse. And, and Washington State just flames out. Now he's in the portal. So there's there's a lot more kids like that out, out there like that than than you think there really is. Now, somebody just put in the chat, there's one kid in particular. That if he jumped in the portal, there's two kids in particular. If they jump in the portal, I go after him right now. And that's Caleb Downs and Keon Keeley. But as of right now, neither of them are in the portal. And so until they are, it's just not even worth talking about. But I doubt that they have any shot at at, at at Caleb Downs, and I and honestly, at this point in time, 
for Keon to jump in a portal and then come to Notre Dame, he'd have to change the priorities that he had that made him go to Alabama in the first place. That's just the reality of it. Now, I hope though that I would love it for that to happen. You guys know my stance on Keon Keeley, even when he left Notre Dame. Love the kid. Think he's a great talent. That would that one I would look at, but he's not in the portal. And I don't know that he's going to jump in the portal. I think people are just assuming that every kid's going to leave just because the coach left. I, Bama's still Bama, and they just they just replaced Nick Saban with the coach who was the national runner-up, right? Who went twenty-five and two the last two years. Like they didn't hire. This isn't like Tennessee hiring Derek Dooley. You know what I mean? Like they hired a good football coach. They're going to lose some kids, sure, but there's going to be a lot of kids, especially the, some of those younger kids, that are going to stay. Next question is from Skyler Indy. Do you think Florida State's sort of success with building a portal team has led to, t- to more teams taking more portal players, and how can Colorado function with six recruits? I don't think Florida State's success has really done that, to be honest with you, because, number one, I don't know that Florida State has built a portal team. They have at and they didn't do it all in one year. I mean, they, they got Keon Coleman this year, but they got Johnny Wilson the year before. It took them two years to put that together. You know, Jordan Travis was a transfer, but he transferred very early in his career before the portal was really a thing. I mean, you got Fentrell, Cypress. I mean, you you certainly got a lot of portal guys. But at the end of the day, look what happened. They were not in the college football playoff. And then when they decided not to play in the playoff, or not, I mean, when they when they were kept out of the playoff, a lot of those guys decided not to play, and they went out and lost by 60 in their bowl game. So, so what really did Florida State accomplish this year? They won the ACC. All right, good. It's good stuff. But then your season ended with a 60-point loss because half your team and, and most of the portal guys, Johnny Wilson didn't play, Keon Coleman didn't play. A lot of those guys didn't play. Jared Verse didn't play. Trey Benson didn't play. Oh, a lot of those portal guys didn't play in the bowl game, and, and you lost by 60. Now, all the momentum that you had this season is is has hit a big roadblock. So – you know, they didn't show me that they can win a championship that way. So uh, I don't know that it's going to change things for a lot of people. You need to hit the portal to win. But I still think it's about building your teams through development and, and all those type of things. Take transfer kids, but take young transfer kids that are going to be in your system for a few years. I think that's still the preference for pe- most people. And how can Colorado function with six recruits? It's uh, a good question. I mean, so far they haven't. They went four and eight this year. They went one eight, one and eight in the Pac twelve. So I don't, I don't know that Colorado is functioning right now. I'd have to look and see what you know. I know they got twenty plus portal kids, right? They're going to get more after the spring. Uh, look, I would love for Deion Sanders to stay at Colorado for a long time, but in my opinion, Deion Sanders just looking to win one good year at Colorado and then use it for something bigger. Like, let's be honest, guys. Deion Sanders goes go San Deion Sanders goes eight, four, nine, and three one year. He's going to get a bigger job. Should or shouldn't? That's a different debate. I mean, you had Robert Griffin the third put a tweet out yesterday, and, and I think he was being serious. It was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in my life. Saying that the Cowboys should fire Mike McCarthy. Fine. Uh, I mean, you know, that's the NFL. It's like the NFL. You can't, I don't care if you win 12 games a year, if you keep getting knocked out in the first round of the playoff, or you win one and then lose again. You're getting knocked out in embarrassing fashion. I'm like, okay, you know, you, you, sometimes you you got to go. But he literally put a tweet out saying they should rep- – and, and not just like a, a quick tweet. He recorded himself saying that and then published it. So this is like a thought out, voiced it, then still hit send that they should replace Mike McCarthy with Deion Sanders. Ridiculous. 
but but that's but but he's still Dion. So someone is gonna say some power five, some big time school next year who's gonna lose their coach is gonna look at Dion and be like, they went eight and four, nine and three. Let's hire Dion when he won't have proved he would wouldn't have proven anything at that point in time. I mean, that's that's the reality of it. So I think that's what he's playing for. That that's that's what that's what or that's what he's building for. I don't think he's building thinking, what are we gonna be in five years? I don't think that's what I don't because none of his answers, his, none of his actions are that. None of his actions are that of someone who is in it for the long haul. Now his words say it, but his actions don't back it up. Because if they did, he'd be f- spending a lot more time on on bringing in more high school developmental kids and saying, "Hey, we're going to take our lumps this next year or so because we're going to have a lot of young players, but we're going to we're going to keep building and we'll get the portal guys at, at certain spots and things like that." But that's kind of where it's at. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.